Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life, and that's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully, so you can be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. All right, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Well, what a way we have to start March for you. We've got Dr. Steven Pinker of Harvard University, the author of the new book, Enlightenment Now. I mentioned this last week. Some of you may have picked that book up and already read some of it. It's a long book. It's about 455 pages. I am happy to say I read it all and have this special opportunity to share my conversation with Dr. Pinker when he visited Full HQ yesterday. The focus of our conversation starts with the world of money and stocks, because that's where I like to start things. But you'll see we go from there to talk a lot about how we humans view our society today, where the world's headed. And from one of the foremost, I won't call him an optimist, he doesn't call himself an optimist, but from one of the foremost bright thinkers who brings data and some history to show that things not only aren't quite as bad as you might think that they are, they actually might be better than they've ever been before. And just by way of introduction, then, here's a little bit more of a formal introduction for our guest this week. My new favorite book of all time, that's what Bill Gates had to say about Steven Pinker's new book. Steven Pinker is one of the world's leading authorities on language and the mind. That's right, he's a psycholinguist. He's the Harvard College professor of psychology at Harvard University. He's won numerous awards for his research, teaching, and books. And Time named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world today. His books include The Stuff of Thought, The Blank Slate, Words and Rules, How the Mind Works, The Better Angels of Our Nature, and The Language Instinct. His new book is Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Stephen, I want to start with a graph. Now, your book, Enlightenment Now, is full of graphs, uh, and many of them start in the upper left and go down to the lower right. But this is one that you don't talk as much about, but we think a lot about here at The Motley Fool. And that's the graph of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, or the S&P 500, over the last century or so. That one starts in the lower left and goes to the upper right. I know you're familiar with it. Why? Why has it increased? Why? Uh, well, um, there are more of us. I mean, the simplest answer is population has increased, but more, uh, I think more to the point, productivity has increased. We've had, we meaning uh, uh, advanced industrial society, ideas of how to get more stuff out of the same number of hours and, and inputs. I, I assume that that's the, the main reason, and the discoveries that allow us to get more stuff out of the same number of uh, hours and materials uh, accumulates. So we don't forget. Uh, we replace inefficient means of doing things with more efficient things, and, uh, and, and so it goes up, not exactly monotonically, because there are you know, 1987 and 2008 and so on, but uh, with a, an overall uh, increasing trend. And I love that graph, because it shows 100 years. It's not just the last two years. And it, it, it's such an obvious, to me, conceit that it, that it would or should. Innovation, which you talk so much about in your book, Enlightenment Now, just the improvement. Be, Average people working worldwide every day to make the world a little bit better. It makes sense to me that it would go from the lower left to the upper right. Let me, let me add something because it is a theme 
of the, uh, the early chapter of the book, which tries to give the big picture of the arc of, of human history, uh, and which ties into my own specialty as a cognitive scientist, which is that these innovations are based on ideas. And we're a species that, more than any other species, lives by thinking up ideas, sharing them by language. And uh, ideas, unlike physical stuff, um, can, can accumulate. They don't, uh, um, you don't lose them when you share them. Uh, I, I, I use the lovely phrase from Thomas Jefferson that uh, when I share an idea, I'm not deprived of it in the same way that if I light your candle with my candle, I haven't lost anything from my candle. He said it more eloquently. Uh, but the, the reason that this cumulative growth of uh, innovation is possible is that uh, ideas once conceived are out there for everyone to share. They can accumulate. You don't need to uh, use up lots of stuff to have more ideas. You don't need lots of room to store them. Uh, they are information and knowledge, which is what our species uh, thrives on, is what has powered uh, largely, maybe even exclusively, this continuing expansion. Is it your expectation that over the next century you'd expect to start somewhere where we are now in the lower left and 100 years from now be in the upper right? Uh, yes, barring the uh, low probability but high uh, uh, impact potential for catastrophes, unless there is uh, a nuclear war, um, climate change is catastrophic if we don't do anything in time. I mean, there are always possibilities for terrible things to happen. Uh, in the past, we have recovered from them, and there have been terrible things such as the Spanish flu epidemic in 1918-1919, uh, the um, economically the Great Depression uh, in terms of human life, World War II, AIDS in Africa. I mean, things do, there are downward jags. So far, we've managed to recover from all of them, and um, I, I like to think that we will in the future, but of course, you can never be certain. Yeah. Um, you, you tell a number of jokes, and of course, uh, as an elegant writer, you are um, entertaining us throughout Enlightenment now. Um, I wanted to share one because it seems so relevant to The Motley Fool and to Rule Breaker Investing in some ways, but it's, uh, you say in an old academic joke, a dean is presiding over a faculty meeting when a genie appears and offers him one of three wishes, money, fame, or wisdom. The dean replies, that's easy, I'm a scholar, I've devoted my life to understanding, of course I'll take wisdom. The genie waves his hand and vanishes in a puff of smoke. The smoke clears to reveal the dean with his head in his hands, lost in thought. A minute elapses, 10 minutes, 15. Finally, a professor calls out, well, well, and the dean mutters, I should have taken the money. <laughs> I heard that from the provost at MIT when I was uh, teaching there. And one of the reasons that I included that joke is that um, in documenting uh, various kinds of improvements in human well-being, democracy, peace, safety, uh, knowledge, liberal values like tolerance of racial minorities, rights for women, tolerance of, uh, of um, gay people and so on. It, it's hard to know what caused all these, the, these various improvements because lots of good things tend to correlate with each other. Societies that are uh, 
uh, are, uh, give more power to their women also tend to be democratic. They also tend to have low rates of crime. They tend to have uh, moderate to high levels of social spending. Uh, they tend to have less inequality. And they also tend to be richer. Uh, and indeed, if you, and so uh, just as a exercise in uh, trying to infer causation from correlation, which is always challenging because so many things go together. I mean, just so many reasons why Denmark is a better place to live than Uganda. Uh, and it's just hard to know wh which is the main one. But just sheer uh, prosperity come, seems to come out in a lot of these analyses as the, the one thing that just doesn't go away when you control for everything else. Now, there's some exceptions. So some of the uh, resource extraction states and, and uh, so like the Arab oil states are very rich and don't have a lot of these benefits. But at least states that get rich through networks of commerce and exchange, um, everything else tends to be good about them. And uh, e even uh, sheer intelligence, in one of the more surprising examples of human improvement, I talk about the so-called Flynn effect, the fact that IQ scores have been rising by three points a decade for a century. And one of the uh, predictors of the Flynn effect in a country is its affluence. You don't use the word entrepreneurism or talk much about entrepreneurs in the book, but I, I, I think of the entrepreneurial cultures as often aligning with um, the most successful cultures. Uh, that kind of ex excludes maybe the Arabs, but does include a lot of the richer countries that have some kind of a culture of people starting businesses. Yeah, I think that that's right as part of the, um, the general networks of exchange and cooperation that uh, tend to make commercial societies uh, less warlike. Uh, it's become, and tend to make the world less warlike as countries are more uh, enmeshed in uh, relationships of exchange. So this was a key idea in the Enlightenment, and, and the book is called Enlightenment idea, uh, now because I attribute a lot of the kinds of, pro of progress that we've enjoyed to some very important ideas that all tended to flower in the end of the 18th century. And one of them was not just the idea that, that markets and networks of exchange make us richer, and that was you know, Adam Smith and uh, David Ricardo's uh, ideas on, on how wealth comes into being, but an idea sometimes called du commerce, gentle commerce, that uh, commerce doesn't just make us richer, but it makes us nicer because we've got to anticipate what uh, our, our, our customers want. Uh, it, when there are networks of exchange, it becomes cheaper to buy things than to steal them. It makes other people more valuable to you alive than dead. You don't kill your customers. You don't kill your, 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 your debtors. And uh, this idea from a variety of thinkers, a number of the American founders and framers, Hamilton, Washington, Adams, Madison, but also Immanuel Kant and Voltaire. And even though today, uh, especially among intellectuals, the idea of commerce is considered r rapacity and exploitation and uh, the source of uh, conflict. But a couple of hundred years ago, when there were royal charters and monopolies and, uh, and aristocrats who just lived by extracting rents off their lands, the idea of, of, of uh, business people making things and exchanging them freely was a great liberal force. Uh, and uh, the idea of gentle commerce uh, has in large part been vindicated in a number of studies that show that nations that 
exchange, that trade a lot with each other, are at least less likely to go to war. And it's not that they, as with all of these things, it's never um, all or none, but in large uh, samples of pairs of countries, that seems to be what, what shakes out. Have you ever seen Jane McGonigal's work about the power of gaming and games? I have not, no. She, she's a fellow academic. I think she operates out of Berkeley, but um, she, she has a few TED Talks uh, along the lines of, uh, gaming will save the world, we're not playing enough video games, and, and the premise is that we're, by playing games with other people, massively multiplayer games of other cultures, people that you don't know that are different from you, that you discover, oh, they live half a world away, it knits us all together so we're not gaming enough. So it's, that's oh, it's some a, more of that same exchange. I was not aware of that. I mean, I am, I, I'm sympathetic to the idea because I'm sometimes embroiled in the uh, controversy over whether video games make us violent. And the evidence suggests that it does not. Uh, it was, in fact, invoked just two weeks ago by our president in trying to explain school shootings. But, uh, but the evidence is that, uh, uh, but no, the first-person shooter games don't breed uh, school, actual school shooters. You quote the economist Peter Bauer, who said, poverty has no causes, wealth has causes. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think that's a, uh, a, a, a profound insight just about the, the arc of, of human progress and uh, with relevance to a lot of debates today because uh, much of the um, commentary on inequality and poverty asks why is there so much poverty. If you think back, think back to first principles, uh, think back to the human species you know, uh, 100,000 years ago, I mean, we were all poor. I mean, that's just, poverty was the human condition because stuff doesn't rain down from, from the skies. We don't get you know, smartphones and TVs and antibiotics. Uh, and the, what we need to explain, and Bauer's quote captures that, is why there is any wealth uh, whatsoever. Uh, and uh, I think that does reframe a number of debates. And it, again, ties back to one of the foundations uh, of the book. One of them was information, knowledge, which we talked about. And another is um, entropy, or the, the fact that in a closed system, disorder will tend to increase, simply because there are so many more ways for things to go wrong than for things to go right. Uh, matter doesn't kind of jump up and arrange itself into clothing or into, uh, or into food. And the third foundational theme of the book, together with uh, information and entropy, is evolution. And evolution also guarantees that left to its own devices, uh, or le left by default, um, our, our lives will not be particularly pleasant or prosperous because uh, everything that we rely on for food is itself a living organism, which would just as soon not be eaten. And so the natural state of affairs is for our, uh, for living things to do everything they can not to become our food. Uh, plants are filled with uh, toxins and irritants and bitter tasting substances, which we've over the millennia bred out. Uh, animals, of course, run away and bite and have poisons. Uh, you know, they don't want to be eaten. And so, uh, like poverty, uh, hunger and want are natural states, uh, unless we use our ingenuity to uh, defeat the defenses of, of plants and animals. But generally, life, the universe, uh, do doesn't go out of its way to make things pleasant for us. Uh, quite the opposite, quite indifferent to our welfare, and it's our own ingenuity that allows us to, to uh, flourish. 
And I mentioned earlier, a book is full of graphs, and most of them start in the upper left and drop down to the lower right. For the bad things. Yeah. Yeah. And that's right. And I wanted you to explain that. That we'll call it. Maybe it's not just an arc. It's a narrative arc. What is what is the narrative arc, and and why are most people, I think, surprised? Yeah. By these insights. The the um, so I don't believe that there is any mystical process or destiny to humanity that we are. Uh, fated to um, travel ever upward. Um, I mean, that, that, that's just mystical, and as a uh, as someone with a scientific mindset, I just don't think there is such a force in the universe. Quite the contrary. The universe is it, totally indifferent, and a lot of the forces of the universe kind of grind us down. But if we have some of the core values of the Enlightenment, such as um, reason, such as science, such as human betterment as itself a goal, and that's not obviously a goal because there are many belief systems where what counts is the fate of your soul in an afterlife as opposed to your happiness as a living, breathing uh, body in this life, or the glory of the tribe or the nation, or advancing the creed or the faith. So even the idea, let's make as many people as possible happy and healthy and, and, and long-lived, that's a, that's a radical idea. I mean, it's, it's, it seems obvious to many of us today because we're children of the Enlightenment, but it was definitely an idea. And, uh, and the fact that we can, by applying and accumulating our ingenuity, we can actually um, uh, succeed. Not everywhere all the time, but, um, uh, but in general. And so the, these various arcs of, of improvement, the fact that we are richer, we live longer, more of us go to school, uh, fewer of us die in wars, few of us die in violent crime, uh, few of us are felled by infectious disease, and, and on and on and on, are uh, gifts of, uh, I, I, I argue, gifts of the Enlightenment. Now, not all of them, but for a lot of the curves, they don't go kind of upward in a line from the beginning of time, but a lot of them show an acceleration in beginning in the, uh, the late 18th and, and 19th centuries with advances such as the agricultural revolution in Britain, where they uh, came, uh, came across better methods of uh, planting and harvesting and crop rotation. A uh, century later, synthetic fertilizers and uh, vigorous hybrids. In the case of um, uh, public health, just um, uh, chlorinating water, keeping human waste out of the water supply, vaccination, antibiotics. Uh, markets were um, uh, kind of lubricated by uh, contracts and finance, and uh, and also a, a general philosophy that it is not kind of shameful to be in commerce. It used to be that the uh, sources of prestige were aristocrats and warriors and priests, and the uh, kind of the, the shopkeepers and merchants were kind of considered the scum of society. And uh, not, not coincidentally, you know, a lot of them were Jews. And anti-Semitism and anti-commercial sentiments went together for, uh, in, in a lot of Europe. Then really starting in the uh, 18th and 19th century, there was some prestige um, attached itself to commerce, which together with the institutions um, uh, and laws uh, helped markets. Um, uh, and, oh, and of course, the technological advances of the Industrial Revolution caused um, uh, gross world product to suddenly shoot up uh, beginning in the 19th century. Mm. So um, all of these amazing advances, and you quote the Louis C.K., who's now not as popular as he was about a year ago, but the very funny, 
I think a lot of us have seen the YouTube video of him talking about how things are much better and why are we all whining about... Every, uh, everything is amazing and no one is happy. There we are. So let's talk a little bit about why no one's happy. Now, I know a little later in the book, you point out that actually we are quite happy and I don't want to steal the thunder, so we'll get there. Yeah. But let's first talk about why I think most people seem surprised. Let me give a... a I, I don't have the, the exact fact, but this is a more true than fake news, that here in, in the a district area, so Washington, D.C., the city of my birth, the homicide rate over the course of the last 30 years has declined by about 75%. Um, and it's been amazing to watch. Uh, D.C. was the murder capital of the world back when I was a teenager, in quotes, murder capital of the world. And there were about 330 to 350 people who got killed in, in the district area every year. And now it's down to more like 100 most people don't realize that. They perceive, they think their children are not safe going out of the home. There are all kinds of threats, and we are kind of, I think, small f fooling ourselves to think that things are really dangerous and bad out there. Negativity bias, availability bias, or anything you'd like to speak to that, I'm curious. Yeah, those are two of the psychological um, uh, phenomena that give rise to irrational pessimism. Irrational in the strict sense that people often will think that things are getting worse as they are getting better, and rates of violent crime being a prime example. But the availability heuristic, uh, um, identified by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, is that we tend to assess risk and probability according to how easily we can retrieve examples from memory. And when you combine that with the, <coughs> excuse me, with the nature of news, namely news <laughs> tends to be about things that go wrong, you never see a, a journalist saying, here I am reporting live from a, a city that has not suffered a terrorist attack uh, or a school that has not been shot up. Uh, as long as rates of violence and other bad things haven't gone to zero, there'll always be plenty of examples to fill the news. And in fact, as the news becomes more efficient at uh, reporting bad things wherever they occur anywhere in the world, we might even get the impression that things are getting worse uh, even if the number of parts of the world that are in boring peace increase, but that doesn't get reflected in stories. It's something that you can only see in uh, percentages in, in data. Then there's the negativity bias, which is that we do, our mind does tend to gravitate toward things that go wrong, probably an adaptation to the fact that uh, there are more ways for things to go wrong than to, than to go right, and the things that, that can go wrong can do you a lot more harm than any of the things that, that, that go right, at least in our, our um, most of human history. I mean, it's, it's rare that there is uh, something like a vaccine that can, in one fell swoop, save millions or hundreds of millions of lives. You know, more often, there are tiny little improvements and risks that can, you know, can kill you. And so our mind tends to focus on what can go wrong, which opens up a market for professional prophets and doomsayers who can remind us of things that can go wrong that we may have overlooked. And so, uh, and uh, I, I quote your, your colleague, Morgan Housel, who said, uh, pessimists sound like they're trying to help you, optimists sound like they're trying to sell you something. So there is a bias in the reception of optimists and pessimists, where a lot of our the most revered social critics really are critics in that they, uh, you know, they, they whine and carp and moan about all the things that, uh, that, that could go wrong. And uh, quoting you, um, and I love this quote, that's why I have it, seeing how journalistic habits and cognitive biases bring out the worst in each other, in combination, uh, how can we soundly appraise the state of the world? And you write, the answer is to count. Yeah, it's, some, it's, it's um, something that does, doesn't 
come naturally to, to people that uh, because probably because as Tversky and Kahneman pointed out, we're, our mind is driven by anecdotes and narratives and images. And the idea that you count up the number of actual bad things as a proportion of the number of opportunities for bad things, and that's the way you assess the state of the world, the risk, the danger, um, that, that's highly unintuitive. That, uh, but I argue that's not only the intellectually enlightened way to assess the state of the world, but it's also the morally enlightened one, because it means that we treat all lives as having equal value instead of the ones that are close, closest uh, to our neighborhoods or most photogenic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kevin Kelly, who I interviewed a few weeks ago, Wired Magazine, uses the word protopia. So rule breaker investing listeners will remember that that's his description of, we're not in a dystopia, we're certainly not in a utopia, but a protopia, the notion that every day things get just infinitesimally better. But they and accumulate, yes. They accumulate over time, and so it ends up being, uh, I think, explaining a lot of the upper left bad stuff to lower right good stuff that you show throughout Enlightenment now. Well, indeed. And as um, Max Roser pointed out, Max is the proprietor of the uh, wonderful website Our World in Data, um, from which I, I downloaded a number of the data sets that mm -hmm. I plotted in graphs. But he pointed out the papers could have had the headline, uh, 138,000 people escaped from extreme poverty yesterday, every day for the last 25 years. And that but is just amazing. Yes, it is amazing. And it is a headline that you never see because it does, didn't happen on a... Tuesday in March. Mm -hmm. um, optimism, I, I want to talk briefly about that. Um, I, I perceive you to be, are you an optimist? Um, or are you just a realist who, in a negative world, looks like an optimist? I, 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 would, say the, I would say the latter. Uh, well, maybe I have an optimistic temperament. If I do, I, I, you know, I try to discount it because that would give me perhaps a, a uh, illegitimate view of the world. So maybe I am by temperament, but more to the point is that I, uh, um, I, I just you know, I plot data which are better than most people think. It's just a fact about the world. And I myself wrote Enlightenment Now and also a previous book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, when I myself was astounded by a number of graphs plotting human well-being over time, and to my shock, they showed uh, improvements that one would never be aware of reading the papers. In fact, the, the, the seed that led to, that grew into the better angels of our nature was a graph that I came across on homicide in England from 1300 to 2000, to, or 1990. And uh, it went down like that, uh, so that a, an Englishman had between a th 35 and 50 times greater chance of being murdered in 1300 compared to 2000. And I was, uh, I, I was stunned when I saw that. I, wouldn't, I never would have guessed it. In fact, I did a little survey to see whether uh, uh, people in general are surprised by this trend. And indeed, a majority of people asked to guess which was more violent, 20th century, um, 14th century. They say uh, 20th century. And they're just you know, wrong by a lot. And I wrote Better Angels when I just kept coming across, not have a sunny disposition or a, or a rose-colored glasses, but um, I came across graphs for deaths in war and uh, um, child abuse and spousal abuse, and they all went downward and no one knew about that. I got to put them together between one pair of covers and then as a psychologist do my best to try to explain them. Then I started reading some other, after I finished Better Angels of Our Nature. Came across a, some data, like in a book by Charles Kenny called Getting Better, 
where uh, I had no idea that extreme poverty across the world was in steep decline. So just in 20 years, the rate of extreme poverty had been cut in half. In 30 years, it's been cut by three quarters. Uh, that literacy had, uh, is, is increasing. 90% of uh, people in the world under the age of 25 are literate. Uh, all these gruesome infectious diseases like malaria and guinea worm and uh, tuberculosis are in decline. Um, I had no idea. Most people have no idea. Uh, Hans Rosling, another kind of rational optimist, or he calls himself a possibilist, uh, did surveys uh, of, uh, where he asked people, do you think that um, extreme poverty is increasing or decreasing? And by a, by a large majority, people say that glo global poverty is increasing. And they're just you know, dead wrong. It's really not. It's decreasing, and by a lot. So he called his uh, project the, the, the uh, Ignorance Project, and its logo is a chimpanzee, because he said if, if he wrote the answers to his questions on bananas and had chimpanzees pick in the zoo pick them, they would have done a better job than the experts on, on public health and, uh, that, that he consulted, who were systematically uh, pessimistic. So being random, you're better than a lot of the experts. Mm. Matt Ridley, who wrote The Rational Optimist, another amazing book that I recommend. And Matt Ridley also came through Full HQ. And the first question he said was, are you an optimist? And I said, well, yes, I am an optimist. And I think he is. But one thing that I've observed, tell me if you think I'm right or wrong about this, is I, I think that optimism isn't in a state of mind or an emotion. It, I think it's a creative force. So one of my favorite lines is Henry Ford, whether you think you can or whether you think you cannot, you're right. So. <laughs> If I'm right about that, that optimism is actually a creative force, then it's a tragedy if we're walking around in a world that's dominated by pessimism, especially if it's ignorant, because you think about all the things that could be created and in mind even better right now if there was more awareness. And that's one of the things I love about your book, because you're creating more awareness, and I think you're going to drive some more optimists. Well, well, I hope so. At least, certainly, um, it's uh, better than being a fatalist. Uh, that is to think that nothing we do can make any difference, which is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And indeed, it's been said that uh, both, uh, it's similar to this Henry Ford quote, pessimism is a self-fulfilling prophecy, optimism is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. Obviously, any improvement that you want to make involves uh, taking risk, involves some expectation that it will succeed, even if it's not, of course, never a guarantee. Uh, and so the, just the uh, mindset that problems are to be solved uh, uh, is uh, crucial to them actually getting solved. Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple. It allows you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. That's right, rocketmortgage.com slash fool. Stephen, I enjoyed your chapter on the environment. I, I learned a lot from it. Um, maybe the ultimate negativity magnet um, for a lot of people today. Um, can you summarize a few of your key points? Uh, 
Yeah, I, I, I consider the, our consciousness of the environment to be uh, a, a kind of progress, a recent one. You only really start to see it in the 60s and 70s. Uh, before that, the world just seemed infinite and inexhaustible. Uh, but I distinguish two uh, mindsets when it comes to the environment. There's the, what has become pretty, a pretty standard hard green view that uh, industrialization was a mistake, economic growth is unsustainable, there are too many people, uh, we will inevitably um, uh, ruin the environment, it's getting worse and worse and worse, and there'll be a dreadful day of reckoning unless we repent and degrow and deindustrialize and return to a kind of abstemious harmony with nature. Uh, it's a bit of a caricature, but not much, and it embraces kind of a range of people from Al Gore to Pope Francis. Uh, the alternative, which very few people are aware of, and it's sometimes called eco-modernism or eco-pragmatism, if anyone is curious, Stuart Brand's manifesto, Whole Earth Discipline, is a good place to start. There's also online uh, a document called an eco-modernist manifesto. And there are a number of other people, um, Ruth DeFries, um, Ted Nordhaus. And here the idea is that um, uh, economic growth is, uh, has been good, uh, capturing energy to reduce entropy and enhance human welfare has been a boon to our species. It's allowed us to live longer, to emancipate slaves when machinery made it uh, e easier to pick crops than, than enslaving humans. It emancipated women from um, uh, domestic drudgery. It em emancipated children to go to school instead of work on farms. Uh, and a lot of what we value in life is made possible by the fact that we deployed energy to resist entropy and, and improve human welfare. Now, a side effect of that is inevitably pollution. and. Uh, we clearly have uh, caused various uh, forms of harm to species, to the environment, to the atmosphere, but that itself can be seen as a uh, problem to be solved, namely how to derive the greatest human benefit with the least harm to the environment. And that can be and has been accomplished with a combination of policy and technology, policy uh, largely putting a price on harm to the environment so that people don't take advantage of the fact that, that they get to pollute the, the commons at everyone's expense because it's not coming out of their hide. Um, and technology, ways of getting the same or more benefits, travel, um, comfortable temperature, light to read by, etc., with less environmental harm. Now this may sound uh, to a lot of traditional hardcore green environmentalists, this is the faith that technology will save us and it's, uh, it, it can never work. But what I try to show in the chapter is that by uh, a number of um, measures is rebounding. And I mean, we can, we can see it in any American city. The, there's less smog. Uh, there are fewer uh, days in which you have to stay indoors. There's less purple haze. Uh, waterways that were um, toxic and, and, and um, um, filled with sludge and, uh, and, and dead fish have been reclaimed by many species and sometimes swimmers. 178 out of 180 countries that have been monitored for changes in the state of environment have shown an improvement, especially the affluent ones, as it costs money to have uh, to enjoy human benefits without harming the environment. And another 
I forgot to mention this in the list of good things that come with affluence. One of them is environmental protection. It's really the poor countries that are the worst polluters. With all that said, global warming is not something that you dismiss. No, and in fact, one, there is one measure of the environment that has not shown an improvement, and that is of greenhouse gases in general. There are um, there's some positive uh, hints, inklings, I wouldn't even want to call them trends, but we uh, every country and the world as a whole has managed to produce more output, more GDP, um, uh, per unit of CO2, so that is economies have been decarbonizing mm. in the okay. sense of how much carbon do you have to emit to enjoy a dollar of, uh, of GDP. Not enough to stave off the risk of uh, harmful warming, but it, at least it shows that there isn't something inherent about modern uh, industrial societies that just locked into flaming carbon. But much, I, I, I report what is pretty much a consensus among co climate um, scientists and, and uh, geophysicists and geochemists and so on, that business as usual will uh, result in, in harmful outcomes very with high probability. Now, it doesn't mean that we're locked into business as usual, and I hope we're not, and I lay out some um, pathways to decarbonizing the economy. But decarbonizing the economy is, I think, what we should aim for as opposed to the vain hope of reversing the economy and, uh, and, and going back to the, you know, before the Industrial Revolution. Um, you lionize, and I think rightly so, a group of people that most of us can't name. And I, I suspect you can probably trot off some names right off the top of your head, but you have a table oh. of people, scientists, doctors, people who have invented cures to horrific human illnesses over the course of the last 150 years and the number of lives saved. Could you name a few of those people or give a good narrative example? Oh yes, uh, this is uh, from a book, Scientists Greater Than Einstein. And there was a, there's a, a group of uh, uh, epidemiologists, statisticians that try to, I mean, th th this is bound to be a guesstimate, but uh, try to attribute number of lives saved to various scientists who have are responsible for innovations in public health, in agriculture, uh, and in medicine. And they include, uh, I think his name is uh, 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 Volman, who um, developed chlorination of public water supplies. Okay. We now think of chlorine as, oh, that's a, uh, you know, maybe it's a carcinogen, it's a poison, but the literally hundreds of millions of lives have been saved by the fact that you turn on the tap and you don't get uh, a glass full of, of uh, cholera uh, of uh, e. e. coli um, or other diseases that in the 19th century just wiped out whole populations and in parts of the developing world still still do. Um, William uh, Fege, I don't know how he pronounced it, F-O-E-G-E, -E, who uh, figured out how to um, vaccinate <clears throat> a subset of the population against smallpox in a way that would interrupt the network of transmission and this exterminated smallpox from the face of the earth, except for two safes in which they, they have a couple of test tubes for, uh, in case they ever need it for research purposes. Um, and you put the number of 300 million lives in the 20th century? From uh, smallpox alone. Um, deaths. Deaths, that's right, 300, 300 million deaths. 300 million um, deaths in 20th century from smallpox, and now uh, it's cured. Haber and Bosch, two German chemists who um, developed a way of synthesizing nitrogen fertilizer 
with with the input of you know a fair amount of, of uh, energy that captured nitrogen from the air and are I forget the number the hundreds of millions of lives that that uh, they saved but it's been estimated that each one of us uh, you know a good chunk of our body mass comes from uh, fertilizer that Haber and Bosch figured out how to uh, capture from the air and that resulted in a huge multiple of um, multiplication of available food. So much so that, and now you know, again, people are never happy and they're always, uh, so solutions to problems create new problems, so now we have an obesity problem. But you know, for most of human history, the concept of an obesity problem would have been you know, inconceivable. I mean, the problem was hunger. Yeah. Um, and now we have an obesity problem. So, I mean, it, as, as problems go, it's a better problem to have than, than famine. Uh, and there are other, um, Gertrude uh, Elion, uh, a um, woman who died, died a couple of years ago, who helped develop um, a number of um, uh, rational, with rational drug design, that is not just trial and error, but synthesizing molecules that are likely to, to cure diseases. Uh, Probably the most, the one that at least some people may have heard of is Norman Borlaug, uh, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970 for um, uh, fomenting the Green Revolution. That is the development through selective breeding of hybrids that had high yields, resistance to disease, uh, resistance to drought, um, uh, longer growing seasons, and is credited with saving a billion lives. And I think he is the person who's typically credited with saving the most lives in history. And for the vast majority of people, uh, you say Norman Borlaug, and they say, Norman who? Uh, and to quote you, the sin of ingratitude may not have made the top seven, but according to Dante, it consigns the sinners to the ninth circle of hell. And that's where post-1960s intellectual culture may find itself because of its amnesia for the conquerors of disease. Yes, it's funny that our culture no longer valorizes the, the scientists who deliver huge benefits to human welfare. And it wasn't always that way. When um, Jonas Salk's polio vaccine was proven to be um, effective and safe in clinical trials in, uh, was it 1956? Uh, but let's go with that. Uh, Church bells rang, strangers hugged each other in the street, there were parades, there was, uh, you know, factory sirens went no off. No school tomorrow. No maybe. school tomorrow, people went home from work early. It was a, a national day of celebration. That didn't happen when smallpox was eradicated, and I don't know if it'll happen when guinea worm is eradicated, which should happen soon. Polio, within our lifetimes, might, uh, might join smallpox in the past tense. But uh, our, uh, for a lot of people, heroes are crusading politicians and prophets and often prophets of doom, whereas the people who've actually uh, you know, saved children from starving or dying of horrible diseases don't get our, our, our moral uh, approval. Um, so last question for me, then we open it up. Um, you start a late chapter asking, but are we any happier? Oh, yeah. and, uh, and people in every country you mention underestimate their compatriots' level of happiness by 42 percentage points. Which direction, uh, I gave it away by saying underestimate. Um, <laughs> why do we do that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny that uh, everyone thinks everyone else is, un, is unhappy. Yeah, you know, some people are unhappy. Uh, but when uh, the mo most famous example may be when Henry David Thoreau said that most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And as I said, it's 
you know, unclear how a recluse living in a cabin on a pond could know this. <laughs> but in <laughs> he any case, he's wrong. but he's he's wrong. <laughs> that is surveys uh, that ask people, you know, how happy are you, or on on a scale of on a, a ten rung ladder from worst possible life to best possible life, where are you on that ladder? And the majority of people put themselves in the top half, and people are, on average, happier than not. Uh, and there are a number of variables that uh, affect how happy the citizens of a given country are. The United States is, in general, uh, above average in happiness by a lot, but below what you would expect given its wealth. In general, wealthier countries are happier. The United States punches below its wealth in, in You happiness. say that, but I still found the number pretty remarkable. If I'm remembering it aright, I think you said self-reported Americans who say they're at least, quotes, pretty happy was, I believe, 90%. That's right. Pretty happier or happier. That, that is right. But at the same time, as you noted, if you ask people, how happy are, is everyone else? And they, people say everyone else is miserable. Uh, it's one of a number of gaps, sometimes called the optimism gap, that people rate their own well-being much higher than they rate everyone else's well-being, uh, including, and, and, and a number of other systematic errors. People uh, underestimate how liberal everyone else is. People, everyone assumes that everyone else is reactionary uh, when it comes to uh, attitudes like women's equality, tolerance of uh, gay people and, and uh, uh, racism and so on. Uh, it's um, true of uh, measures like crime. So everyone, uh, people will often say that their own block, their own neighborhood is, is okay, but every other part of the city is a, a, a jungle. Uh, people will say their kids' schools are pretty good, but schools in the country are horrendous. Um, and this, of course, does drive voting behavior because a lot of when people are puzzled as to why voters tend not to vote their seem not to vote their own interests, uh, they're often voting their perception of which way the country is going, not voting uh, their own circumstances, which is actually not irrational because you can't vote your own interests in the sense that your vote isn't going to change anything, almost certainly. Um, and so the whole notion that people vote their own interests is almost self-refuting in that voting is, in effect, a symbolic expression of your opinions, your tribal identity, uh, uh, because you're not going to increase your paycheck by voting for one candidate over another. There are just too many other people voting. All right. We've got our first question, and good. We have a microphone. That'll make it a lot easier to hear on the podcast. Hey, Jim. Hello. So I, uh, being a scientist in a previous life myself, I love this kind of data uh, showing that things are improving, uh, but it runs out of it in that so many people uh, believe that's not, and oftentimes those Oftentimes those uh, beliefs are held not uh, rationally, but emotionally. And so how would you address an emotionally held belief that is in fact wrong according to the data? Yeah, it's um, how to change a uh, whole culture is, uh, uh, to put it mildly, not, not an obvious uh, uh, problem uh, to solve. And, and I don't, don't have a solution because um, you know, we just don't know what goal, what shifts a whole population, you know, one way or another. Um, I, I, I do think that the culture of 
journalism and the culture of education ought to become more quantitative, more data-oriented. And there's a, I'm not, there are many people who've made this call, the people who are aware of the literature on cognitive biases and fallacies from Tversky and Kahneman and Thaler and, and others have noted that uh, a general statistical awareness should be something that's inculcated very early in education and, and applied consistently, that journalism and intellectual life should be more uh, um, uh, numerate, more, st more data-oriented, less driven by anecdotes and stories. On top of that, I, uh, I, I do think that there is a kind of a, a equation of negativity with sophistication and moral awareness in much of the media and, and intellectual life where uh, people think that it is enlightened to be uh, pessimistic or even fatalistic, that you just have to walk around in a state of um, dudgeon and, and uh, it being indignant about you know, everything, uh, and that somehow that's more morally sophisticated. There are some journalists who have pointed out that this is, um, can actually be harmful in that it encourages fatalism, people thinking, why even bother to try to improve things if uh, everything is just spiraling downward? Um, if the world is going to end in a catastrophe of nuclear war or runaway uh, artificial intelligence and you know, catastrophic climate change, well, let's let's just have fun while it lasts. Uh, and it can also lead to to radicalism, to calls to just tear everything down, and since uh, that anything must be better than what we have now. So I would I would hope that. Just uh, opinion makers, journalists, um, politicians, um, intellectuals, writers, social critics would be more aware of the, uh, not just the harm done by widespread fatalism, but the fact that it's in so many cases you know, just factually in error, uh, and to take a more um, uh, both data-oriented, realistic, but also constructive approach to problems, namely that they are problems and we should seek solutions to them. Past solutions have really improved things and, and we have every reason to believe that future ones will, will as well as long as we take that problem-solving mindset. All right, one more question. Thanks for being here. Uh, a few days ago, I was scrolling through Twitter and noticed that Elon Musk had directed some pretty strong words directed toward you over artificial intelligence. Uh, and I was just curious if that exchange caused you to shift your thinking about AI at all, and why or why not? Well, no, because I, I, there was no argument there, and I haven't seen any, uh, actually, paper or article by Elon Musk on uh, why as, as he put it in a tweet, um, artificial intelligence is more dangerous than nukes. Um, I, that strikes me as hyperbole. I have a, an extended discussion in Enlightenment now on uh, uh, risk from artificial intelligence. Well, I think uh, a lot of the scenarios that have been um, broached are t utterly fanciful, uh, in, such as will give an advanced artificial general intelligence the goal of curing cancer, and it will turn us all into guinea pigs for fatal experiments. Now, for, for many, many reasons, um, I think that's just not something to worry about. Now, of course, any techno technology has risks, and uh, there ought to be a continuation of the culture of safety in, among engineers of you know, not to do stupid things, like turning over vast amounts of the infrastructure to uh, unpredictable algorithms. Uh, I, I think it's very unlikely that, that anyone would, would, would uh, want to do that. Uh, 
I, I think it's also extremely unlikely that, that there will be such an explosion of artificial intelligence that it will run away from us faster than we could you know, pull the plug or, or turn it off or install safety measures, um, partly because there's been so much hype about the recent advances in, in artificial intelligence out of touch with, uh, I think, with actual reality. But for, for a number of reasons, uh, I mean, there's nothing to respond to because this, these are just uh, kind of tweets and, and um, isolated remarks. But I don't, I don't find the um, more extensive discussions of AI risk to be particularly um, uh, worrisome in terms of extermination of humans and dominance by, by uh, computers worse than nuclear, more dangerous than, than nukes and so on. I think, that, I think that's hyperbolic. I want to mention that I really enjoyed your chapter on existential threats. Um, and the good news is a lot of them aren't nearly as threatening as they're often made to sound. Uh, that last question, Stephen, came from a millennial, one of our millennial employees here, David Kretzman at The Motley Fool. I wonder if you could maybe close with just a thought or two about how likely the future is to change based on David being around maybe longer than you and I will be around <laughs> and what we can generalize about his ilk. Uh. Yeah, there's been a lot of a lot of commentary on um, uh, millennials, and there've been, um, I think, a lot uh, a lot of misconceptions. When I fact checked some of the claims, found that the uh, fears about epidemics of depression and anxiety disorders and and psychological uh, um, uh, dysfunction were if not exaggerated, contrary to fact, it's actually the, the baby boomers that are the generation that's really in trouble in terms of suicide, depression, uh, drug abuse, and so on. Uh, certainly in among millennials, there is a, a very strong commitment to um, uh, opposition to racism and sexism and homophobia. Attitudes that, uh, based on past studies of um, longitudinal uh, changes in attitudes suggest that they're likely to carry them with them as they that they get older. That contrary to the claim that if you're a uh, if you're not a liberal in your 20s you have no heart. If you are a liberal in your 50s you have no brain. Uh, that that we all get more conservative as we age. It turns out not not to be true in general. So the the liberal progressive attitudes among millennials are unlikely to reverse, based as we know. I think there are there are some. Um, trends among uh, millennial generation that, you know, as, as an aging bo baby boomer, uh, are, are I find worrisome. The um, lack of uh, appreciation of democracy and uh, where, where confidence in democratic institutions seems to have gone uh, down uh, in the generations, and commitment to free speech, which I consider to be a prerequisite to almost everything else, simply because no one's infallible, no one's omniscient. The only way we make progress is to throw ideas out there and have at them, see which ones are viable, which ones aren't. Without free speech, then we are crippling ourselves uh, by entertaining only a fraction of the possibilities. And as far as trends go, that seems, there seems to be less of a commitment to free speech among millennials. However, um, as with all of the commentary on, you know, on my generation uh, as we grew up, that we were all going to join Hare Krishna and uh, chant and, and follow our horoscopes. Uh, there, there's a lot of generation to generation hysteria that the younger, every generation thinks that the next one is going to ruin society. Um, and knowing just the sheer diversity among millennials and 
the generation after, sometimes called Generation Z, sometimes called uh, iGen. Uh, there's, there is a lot of diversity, and I see, at least among some, uh, say, of my students uh, at Harvard, an ironclad commitment to free speech and democracy. Um, and so it's always dangerous to use a statistical summary to, uh, as if it applied to every last member of that generation. Steven Pinker, thank you for joining us at Full HQ. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope once again that we've managed to educate, to amuse, and to enrich you, whoever you are, wherever you are. And for me, one of the things that I'll take away and remember is that most people think the world is worse off when actually asked what they think personally, they, they're doing okay, but they think everybody else isn't doing that well. And that's a pretty profound insight, especially for us as investors. If you truly think of yourself as a money saver, and then somebody who's going to take a risk and put it in a company, in a stock, buy a stock, create a portfolio, aim to beat the market, it's remarkable what a contrarian thing that is considered to be these days. Not in all areas of the world. In fact, Hong Kong, we talked briefly about that at Mailbag last week with Brian Richard visiting. Hong Kong is a country that I think is number one in the world in terms of people who own directly stocks outright. I think the number is something like 44% of people in Hong Kong own stocks directly. But for most of the rest of us, it's a pretty contrarian thing to do. And part of the reason we do beat the market is because so many other people, in fact, not only don't do it, but don't believe that it's possible, won't even play the game, and maybe are over-influenced by negative headlines and beliefs that things couldn't possibly get any better, likely they'll be worse. So I think that's part of a Rule Breaker's special sauce. Well, next week, it's the next installment of our game show. That's right, it'll be the Market Cap Game Show with my friend Matt Argusinger. Get ready, study up on your Market Caps, fools. Be ready for this one. See if you can beat Matt. Always have a lot of fun thinking through how much companies are actually worth versus what you or I might guess when we guess at their market cap. In the meantime, full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.